Harry, let me ask you a question. Yeah, what is it, Matt? Do you love cats? <laughs> do I? Do I? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Do you think cats should be cared for? Yes, of course I do. Are you looking for the ultimate resource on feline health and well-being? Every minute of every day. Well, listen, mate. Guess what I've got for you? International Cat Care, the sponsors of this episode of the Animal Chat Podcast. Wait, what? They're sponsoring our podcast. We are we are they're, doing this. Matt, they are sponsoring Matt, our, podcast, our first sponsor. Matt, I was Matt, they're bad. not. Matt. What? Matt. <laughs> they're not. What? What do you mean? This isn't sponsored by International Cat Care. Well, why are we doing it? Then? It's in collaboration with International oh, Cat God. Care to do promote International Cat Day, but they're not sponsoring us. This is ridiculous, right? Do you? Th- I have enough partnerships in my job. Why are we promoting? What's going on, Harry? Tell me. We're promoting International Cat Day. Why? Because it's International Cat Day, and we're the Animal Chat Podcast, and we're all about promoting animal welfare and yeah, um, yeah, and animals. But like, yeah, yeah. why on earth did you think that they were sponsoring us? You know what, Harry? Actually, what? Tell you this. I got a LinkedIn request the other day from somebody who runs a vegan food company, right? And honestly, I was rubbing my hands. I was like, finally, sponsorship. He sent me a message, which anyone on LinkedIn, when you get a request and a message comes with it, you know they're after something. Unfortunately, it's most of the time it's creepy old CEOs following 18-year-old interns, sending them, I like your profile pic. But usually that's what happens. But occasionally, <laughs> occasionally, and that does happen, by the way, occasionally. It was one time, and it was a very <laughs> nice profile pic. <laughs> Uh, and he um, he sent me a message saying it'd be great for us to have a partnership. I really want to be connected with you. And honestly, I thought, finally, we've made it, Harry. Not a vegan sausage from him. Just happy to be connected with me. Like I need another connection. Great. Jesus. <laughs> anyway, well, come on. What have they got to plug? Tell me. What have we got to plug? International Cat Day. Harry, Do you know what International Cat Day is? International Cat Day is a day to promote the happiness and understanding of cats. And the tagline for International Cat Day, making cats happy. It's that simple. It's that simple. It's about making cats happy. Around the world, make cats happy. Do you have a cat, Matt? No, listen, I'll stop you right there. I'll tell you how to make a cat happy. You give them a biscuit. Done. Not complicated. (laughs) I'm sorry, everyone. I'm only joking. Give them a biscuit. Yeah, I used to to work for a cat. Because that's what made you happy when you were six. (laughs) It's actually Cocoa Pops. Uh, but um, if you're asking, obviously, it's very important that we promote cat and well-being. And International Cat Day is when lots of organisations come together and say, we care about cats. We want people to neuter their cats. We want them to rescue cats. Uh, we want them to bloody stop putting your water bowls together. Separate them. Not only water bowls, but your water bowl and your feeding bowl. Like, don't have them next to each other. Separate that makes them. way more sense than what I just said. Let me start yeah. again. It is, yeah, because who has two water bowls next to each other? What kind of fucking freak are you? Is there a a fish in one of them? No, I'm looking right now at my dog's water bowls, and there's two water bowls next to each other. So that is why I said that. I apologize, people. Let's start that bit again, Harry, because I come across as a right knob. (laughs) So what we want is we want people to care about their cats, Harry. We want them to get neutered if they can. Care about your cats. Get your cat sterilized. Look after it properly. Environmental enrichment. Make sure you're doing things like separating the water bowl and the food bowl. Why do we want people to do that, Matt? Oh, just because you have to. Who cares? What we want to do... (laughs) (laughs) 
Because just take our word for it. If you want to find out why, yeah. go to the International Cat Care website. Yeah. Find out all the information that you need about yep. cats and cat welfare. But trust us, there is a wealth of resources on the International Cat Care website, all about cat welfare, cat behavior, how to make your cat happy on this International Cat Day and every day. What are you doing today in International Cat Day, Harry? How are you spending it? I am spending it looking after my cat, making my cat feel like it's special. You're so on message like Ivanka Trump. It's unbelievable. I, I absolutely am. My dog can go fuck itself. <laughs> <laughs> it's all about my cat today. You nearly made me die then. I nearly died. <laughs> uh, because it's International Cat Day, we have got, sponsored by International Cat Care, Not. we have got an icon in the cat. We do. We have got Ian McFarlane. I've known Ian for 20 years and a lot of the opportunities that I've had, and we've talked about this on previous podcasts, within animal welfare, it's often about the connections that you've made and the opportunities that those bring. And Ian is one of those people that has had an impact on my career. And so it was really lovely to be able to catch up with him on this podcast and reminisce a little bit and talk about the work that we did together as well as the work that he's doing now. And it's just really nice. One of the great things in animal welfare is, as you well know, Matt, it's very collaborative and you end up working with the same people and you end up being good friends with these people. And so being able to basically have a podcast with somebody who's a friend is really nice. Well, do you want to know what my relationship with Ian McFarlane is? Sexual? <laughs> no. Inappropriate? <laughs> no, well, I post... Financially motivated? I, I, I've known Ian for a, a few years now, <laughs> met him some cat thing, did some TNR training with him. Great guy. He is, but he's massively passionate about cat welfare and yeah. cat behavior and everything to do with cats. And so should we just get stuck in yeah. International Cat Day special with Ian McFarlane on the Animal Chat Podcast? known each other Ian for a very very long time when did we first meet it's like 20 years ago or something isn't it it's shockingly despite our youth it's uh, it is 20 years ago yeah because you were like 12 and I was 15 at the time right well actually no Harry when I first met with you you were 30 you just had your 30th birthday and obviously 20 years on you've just had your 50th so that's how I can always remember it quite easily thanks very much everyone for listening to this week's Animal Chat podcast uh, that's the last <laughs> time we're going to hear from Ian McFarlane no problem Harry Ian, Harry and I have a rule. We don't talk about each other's ages. Okay. Broke the number one rule about Fight Club. No we never talk about that. No worries. <laughs> Mission accomplished. Um, yeah, it is, it is, it's 20 years. And it's interesting when you think about sort of where we were in animal welfare 20 years ago, because I think you and I would both agree that in its quirky way at the time, the Mayhew was very very progressive and if you look at some of the stuff that we were all doing 20 years ago at the Mayhew we were doing the very first going out to support rough sleepers with dogs on the street yep. we were doing the very first early neutering in shelters yep. we launched the very first community outreach program that an animal shelter that was dedicated multi-species community outreach yep. 
working with individual pet owners. And these are all things that are taken for granted now. But I think at that time, there was really nobody else doing it. I, I remember you began at the time to go out to actually see a lot of dogs, home assess dogs in their home environment. Yes, that's right. Well, they came into the centre so that you could actually see what their behaviour was like in their comfortable, normal setting as a, as a baseline. Yeah. Again, pretty much no one else was doing that at the time. And I think the Mayhew experience that we've had, yourself and myself, and there's a number of other people that work there, the Mayhew has tended to create some people that have gone on to do other really progressive stuff in animal welfare. It was a really great grounding, I think. It was. But that wasn't your first foray into animal welfare because you'd been <laughs> you've been around the block a few times before that hadn't you I you're already have. a qualified I've, veterinary nurse i've been around the block many times like when you said foray i thought you were gonna say fungal <laughs> yeah i mean most of my original eight nine years when i got into animal welfare was in veterinary nursing i've always pretty much always been a charity person i haven't really wanted to work in private practice when i was a nurse i did a little bit of loafing so a lot of my early nursing was with the PDSA and again, really fantastic place to learn vet nursing and to get a lot of experience because it's extremely busy. A little bit of nursing with PDSA and the RSPCA and I spent some time at Wood Green up at God Manchester as well. But my interest sort of into 1997-1998 moved a lot from vet nursing with owned animals towards issues relating to unowned animals and a certain amount to do with free roaming animals but mostly to do with animals in shelters so I kind of moved across at that time from PDSA work into working with the RSPCA in Wood Green in a shelter environment shelter medicine environment and what was it that got you into animal welfare in the first place Ian? Juliet Bravo got me really into animal welfare. yeah wow for people that don't know what Juliet Bravo is maybe you want to explain what Juliet Bravo is yeah for our international audience born since 1980. Yeah, so Juliet Bravo was a BBC One early evening 80s police TV series. And I was obviously a, a very young child at that stage, and I quite liked this programme. So the rule at home was I got to watch Juliet Bravo, but I used to have to go and do my homework straight after. And uh, one evening at the end of school term, we had no homework, so I left the TV on after Juliet Bravo. And uh, there was this programme called Animal Squad, which was the very first fly-on-the-wall documentary about the RSPCA. And we'll talk about 1986, 1987. And to this day, if you ever get the, the chance to see it, it was one of the only documentaries of that sort that was done as completely fly-on-the-wall. So there was absolutely no narrative voiceover or anything. It was just simply the footage edited together. And it followed the RSPCA officers around in West Yorkshire, around Leeds and Bradford. And I was absolutely hooked. I had no idea that this could be done as a career. I kind of came from an Indian subcontinent family, South Indian roots. So therefore, my career options that had potentially been placed in front of me at that point were doctor, lawyer, accountant. So the idea that I could go around saving the world on a cat-by-cat basis, you know, that became very appealing. And at that stage in my life... I was in my teens, and you couldn't apply to the RSPCA until you were 22. So I needed to find something to do between sort of 17 and 22. And that's what took me off to vet nursing, because that was literally the only filler I could do for those years that gave me also gave me a qualification at the end of it, which you know, I think was a really <laughs> very wise decision at the time, because the RBN qualification is immensely useful and remains immensely useful as well. What did your family think of that? 
they were not impressed. It wasn't a particularly uh, animal-friendly family anyway. It isn't the classic story of saying, well, I grew up around loads of animals and, you know, it was in the blood and all that kind of thing. It certainly didn't come from that route. I'm hoping I just didn't do it as an act of rebellion to do something completely different because I've been stuck with it for 31 years now. So it, it would have got a bit stale if it was just for rebellion purposes. First of all, uh, thanks for that really strange retro <laughs> plug about Julian Barber. I literally had no idea what you two were talking about. Um, <laughs> But uh, anyway, uh, I want the listeners to not also feel slightly not know what was going on just then. Have I improved on that? <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so what was really interesting as well, Ian, is you said that you started out with vet nursing with the PDSA, but then eventually you started to transition into street or unowned animals. Was there a particular fascination with them for you or was it just an accident that you ended up going into that sort of area at that point? I don't know. I like to think it wasn't simply that if you deal with unowned animals, you're less likely to have to deal with their owners, which is one of the (laughs) motivations that has been mooted. I think it's the challenges and the um, veterinary work, veterinary nursing work in terms of treating animals is fairly detective based anyway, because you've got to diagnose a condition. When you're dealing with unowned animals, your investigative skills in finding out, because you don't always have a clinical history or you have a clinical history and a set of symptoms that you've potentially only been aware of maybe five or ten minutes and you have no, you don't know the animal's age sometimes and you don't necessarily know how they've come to be in the predicament that they're in. So that makes it a hell of a lot more challenging, a lot more interesting. I guess the other part of it is that these are animals obviously that don't have somebody caring for them that don't have somebody at home when you work in environments such as the pdsa you do still see neglect but most of that neglect is unintentional and some of it is due to ignorance but most of those animals at the end of the consultation they go back home with their owner and most of them will have a reasonable quality of life now we can talk later on about whether in some cases being in a home is a particularly good quality of life versus actually free roaming in the street which may well be better for them but I think that's the fascination was the idea that these animals have absolutely got no one rooting for them other than us and literally their entire fate is in our hands at that interaction. I think that's really interesting what you're saying because I've also worked the same probably areas that you saw you know the program that you watched with the RSPCA in Bradford and Manchester to do with street cats and it's really interesting to see their quality of life and what the challenges are. And, and it's an entirely sort of different way of working in animal welfare to working with owners, rehoming cats or other animals, isn't it? There's an entirely different set of challenges. I mean, it's extremely glamorous. You know, you end up going down back streets late at night trying to avoid bins and things like that. Or at like seven in the morning waiting for a cat that you've been trying to catch for the last month. But it is a really different type of working, isn't it? It is. I think it's um, the best example I can give. It's a a lovely vet nurse in London called Lauren Williams, who Harry and I have volunteered with a few times. And Lauren always used to say, you can tell who the cat trappers are by um, the reek of sardines from every part of their (laughs) clothes and and everything. But it it is. I think it's the interesting thing is, obviously, I'm aware that uh, this is going to go out on International Cat Day and there's a link to International Cat Care. In one of the really nice mantras that they use as part of the cat friendly homing program is the very first thing you need to do is to respect the species respect and understand the species if you can't respect the species for what it is and the same is true for street dogs as it is for street cats 
if you don't respect the species for what it is, you're not going to be able to come up with the best outcome because your outcome is going to be totally subjective on what your own expectations are and what you think would be nice. And in more than one situation, I've had to deal with organisations that feel that the only way that you can help a street cat or a street dog is to put some wire up and some chain link and a shed and build a shelter and put the animal in there because it's obviously going to be much happier in a shelter, which is a bit mm. weird because it's, it's almost like the opposite of what I was talking about with vet nursing, the PDSA, but it's recognising that these animals actually can get quality of life and their intervention if you're tailoring a mild intervention that is appropriate to that cat, you can actually do a hell of a lot more for that cat than you can by bringing it into a shelter. And certainly I've had two or three experiences where I've had to work in a shelter situation where the shelter is very overcrowded, the rehoming rates have dropped, the disease levels have gone through the roof and there's constantly ringworm, constantly cat flu. And the very simple thing of streamlining the animals that you take in and recognising that some of those animals need to be returned to field and then becoming a rehoming establishment rather than being a warehouse for large numbers of animals that you can't rehome, I think is one of the most valid things you can do to help a street animal. Certainly I've worked in some of the areas, Matt, that you have, which is Greater Manchester around the Trafford and South Manchester area. And... I would agree that although those areas have huge amounts of problems, there's a lot of very happy feral cats out there. Mm. And the tiny amount of intervention that's needed, it's also massively cost efficient because you can help 100 cats through TNR potentially for the same amount of money you might spend on taking 10 of those into a shelter and rehoming. So your expenditure and your time and your commitment goes so much further in quite a short space of time yeah i completely agree and obviously and the point that you made there is really important because it's not even about it being a, a crappy shelter that's overcrowded and, and problematic even if it's a fantastic shelter if you bring in a cat that is feral or semi-feral or is happy living on the streets and is not particularly confident around people, you're putting it into an environment where it's just going to spend its life in a state of stress, being miserable and unlikely to be rehomed because it's not an easy, friendly, homeable cat. And so you're taking it out of an environment where its welfare is going to be better. Yeah. And it is going to live a life based on the needs of that species and, and that individual cat. I think so. I think, again, so at the moment when I'm involved in him and Bermuda, I'm involved in a shelter that has, over the last couple of years while I've been here, gone through that journey from being somewhere that had a lot of cats that have been here for a long time to a situation where a few weeks ago we had five cats in the shelter and we had no cats on the waiting list to come in. And in fact, half of the shelter, half the cat runs at the moment are used for rabbits because once a cat comes in here, there's a demand that we're able to, in fact, we can't quite meet the demand at the moment. But previously, the intake into the shelter was of inappropriate animals anyway that really would not cope with being here. It was of no relationship really to the output. So consequently, this is a small country. There are 70, 75,000 people here. So your potential pool of adopters is quite finite. If you're bringing more animals into a shelter environment, no matter how good that shelter environment is, and you don't have the requisite number of adopters, and it's not down to marketing or you can't make people want to have a cat, the very concept that you can do something to turn someone that doesn't want an animal into an adopter goes against every principle of responsible animal welfare. So what you really want to be doing is matching your input and your output. 
once you do that, your shelters tend to run very, very efficiently. Your animals don't get sick because, it, as you quite rightly said, Harry, even a very good shelter will still have its issues if you have too many animals or if you have the wrong type of animals there that are not appropriate to be in that shelter because of the stress and mental effects on them. So that's a later on journey from my point of view that really has hit me in the last perhaps 10 years or so and certainly the last three or four jobs that I've been in we've gone along that journey and consistently what we found is that when you do that your rehoming rates double your return rates drop your disease rates literally go away I am clinging to a piece of wood here but we have had no infectious disease outbreaks in, in shelter here in Bermuda for two years nearly. And similarly in Malta, which is where I was just before I was here, the same thing. There's pretty much been no contagious infectious disease outbreaks since early 2017. So we're into the third three and a half years. And some of that's down to good hygiene and cleaning, but a lot of that is down to not having large numbers of very stressed animals that are hugely susceptible to those kinds of illnesses which are very opportune in in stress animals. Do you think you might be able to uh, transfer some of this knowledge and experience and find a place on the coronavirus task force? (laughs) Um, It's quite funny because there are a couple of Facebook groups which the veterinary professions use and they are closed groups and they are safe spaces for the veterinary profession and it's very hard not to look at the coronavirus response from the veterinary perspective we look at it and we think an airborne virus that incubates for seven days that tends to target elderly animals and explodes in areas of high population density and concentration and through you know through very close contact that's the kind of stuff you deal with in animal shelters all the time and you build your protocols around you know the prevention of those kinds of things So we see massive parallels with the measures that are brought in compared with the kind of stuff that you're doing to barrier nurse within a shelter, within manage your intake, manage your intake spaces. The other thing that we found mildly amusing is the the revelation that um, dexamethasone as a steroid is a wonder drug because that's something the veterinary profession has known for the last hundred years or so basically and we do have a bit of a giggle at that because it, it is something that you know steroids go with last ditch attempts when other things don't work but interestingly going from that sort of frivolity going to a more serious side there's such a large amount of talent within the veterinary profession and particularly the charity and the shelter medicine parts of the veterinary profession many people will know that's like Jenny Stavisky and Kate Chevelle and people like that there's a huge amount of expertise in those people, which I honestly feel that the human medical profession could have tapped into, and it would have been a different angle on things. But there's a large amount of academic qualification and practical experience in many of our vets, so it's interesting to see how how this pans out. So thinking about your um, CV, almost <laughs> like you mentioned just there, where you went from Malta to Bermuda, uh-huh. it might be safe to say you've seen cats in so many different countries. It is probably quite unique. What have you learned about cats through your journey across the world, seeing them from Sudan to Malta to Bermuda to all different places? I remember you showing me once a map of all the countries you've worked in. Did I? (laughs) Yeah, it was in a training years ago. It's incredible, really, the experience you have. What have you learned about cats through your travels? And is there anything that you think that people could learn from how other countries treat cats? 
Yeah, it, it is really interesting looking at the human human cat interactions because there are little variations, but there are a number of constants. And Harry will know this. You, Harry, you've done a lot of work with companion animal populations in all sorts of countries and you know strategically yeah, yeah. but what's really interesting is people are pretty much the same everywhere cats are pretty much the same everywhere and generally notwithstanding that some of them are a little bit um, totalitarian but even at municipal level at local municipal level most government institutions are fairly similar so the problems that keep popping up is that you have some cats, you have some people that love cats, some people that don't love cats, you have uh, a local authority that needs to do something about the fact that there are too many cats. And the journey that will then happen, it's variable, but a lot of the same things will pop up. And what's quite interesting, I find, as an influencer is what the resources are that are available. When we went to work in Sudan with International Cat Care for the first time, this was a country, I think it's 36 million, I think is the population. There were four vets that could spay a cat at that time when we went in to work with them. Two of them had learned how to spay a cat by watching spay a cat videos on YouTube. And the other two, I think, had worked in the UK and had returned, having learned their clinical practice there. So we focused very much on surgical training for vets and trying to roll that through into the curriculum at one of the vet schools, partly as a means of enabling humane population control of street animals, but also to really um, upskill and improve the range of what the veterinary professions can offer as well. One of the things that was really interesting is that because it was a relatively novel, sort of naive veterinary profession in terms of dealing with cats, there was no emotional baggage. So when we presented cats from different ages, from about nine, ten weeks of age through to young adult cats, certainly, absolutely, almost all of the, the Sudanese vet were more than happy to, to neuter at nine and ten weeks at the end of this because they had no emotional baggage attached to the age of neutering, which everybody else will pop out that terrifying figure of six months that keeps popping up again and again as the age at which you should neuter a cat, which is purely based on traditional and emotional baggage. So what I found is quite interesting is when you take out tradition and emotional baggage and you find the community that has an animal problem and you expose that community to a process of trying to find a solution, almost every single community is equally as talented. There's no particular ethnicity, race, nationality, gender, age, whatever in the human race that prevents you from naturally having the ability to do really good animal animal welfare. It's just the resources that have been available may have been a bit rubbish and there's a huge amount of emotional baggage. But once you can cut through all that, um, I tend to find that the animals and the people that are working with them tend to go along the same journey. And I think you know, we've all seen either firsthand or in video form some of the guys in India and in Sri Lanka that are involved in catching dogs for rabies control programs that are literally kind of working around the streets with Balinese dog nets catching dogs. And it's pretty amazing. And these guys, what everybody forgets is that although these guys may be considered, particularly in India, they may come from lower ethnic castes, but they're actually world leaders in terms of catching dogs. They are some of the best dog catchers in the world. It's interesting when you give people potential to excel in their field in animal welfare, they often do. And it's often simply been that a lack of a very basic resource that's held people back. But interestingly, the same characters tend to pop up when you're dealing with cats. 
the cat feeders tend to be the same, the cat vets tend to be the same, the animal advocates tend to be of a very similar, you know, they may be from slightly different backgrounds, but they may be from a very similar motivation. What's very, very gratifying is that the more I deal with more and more um, delivery training and teaching on courses like the ITP course that the Dogs Trust runs, that demographic is coming down in age quite a lot. And so we're not in that situation we were maybe 10 years or 20 years ago where we were a bit worried because all the animal people were all old fogies and were going to die out in the next few years and who was going to take their place. We're tending to see a lot of young people in their 20s getting involved as volunteers and as advocates as well, which is absolutely awesome. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things I wanted to chat with you about, Ian, obviously, so as well as our shared time at the Mayhew, we worked together in Portugal a lot when you started doing... TNR or trap new to release projects in Portugal, going out and trapping and sterilizing feral cats and releasing them back. For those that don't know what TNR is, everything I learned, I learned from you. And um, so I'm going to publicly say here and now, very grateful for uh, for everything that you taught me. And and obviously, we all know that I'm better at it now. But um, <laughs> I was going to say wow. it's, it's that old word, despite is D E S P I T E. Which uh, <laughs> contains, contains the word spite. To, to sing your praises, I literally learned everything about cat management and cat trapping from you on the many, many trips. I've lost count of the number of trips we had in Portugal and the number of cats that I trapped alongside you. And, and then later on in competition against you. Which are triple figures these days. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. But... What I wanted to talk to you about was obviously the evolution of that, because when we started coming out and working locally in Portugal and finding colonies of cats, we did what was at the time the norm. You brought a team out, which was trappers, vets, veterinary nurses, set up a a remote clinic that at the time was in a villa or some property that we could set up a uh, a working manageable veterinary clinic, a high turnover sterilization clinic. And it was about the numbers. It was like, how many animals can we get in the week or the 10 days that we're out here? Sterilize as many because that's going to have a significant impact. You do that once a year, twice a year. And obviously we know and love to hear your thought evolution on this, that subsequent to that, we realized that that actually isn't the right way of approaching a problem because it's not sustainable because you're not building local capacity. And that when you step away, if you don't come back for a year, then, you know, it's great for the cats that you've sterilized, but you haven't actually made an impact on the community, on those colonies or anything like that. And so kind of talk about that a little bit more, but also the evolution of your thought and explain why we now work the way that we do, which is much more about local capacity and strategy and building veterinary capacity and training. Yeah, I mean, it's actually what you've described is something, uh, for those of you that don't know, Jenny Stavisky, who's the really the leading shelter medicine expert in the veterinary profession in the UK, professor at Nottingham Vet School, who was one of our co-conspirators in in those hefty days. And Jenny describes it as, I went out to Portugal, I spayed 200 cats, what did I achieve, bugger all, apart from maybe it was nice for those cats. So it's an interesting discussion because I've had this discussion with one of my trainee inspectors that I'm working with here at the moment, that um, you should never forget that it is actually if you do it right, it's a pretty nice thing to happen 
to that individual cat and there is a validity in that but what it isn't is population management exactly it is only population management if you're actually managing the population i think as you described harry it's very easy to get a hundred percent population management total control if your population is only one cat the theory we bat about quite a lot but i think there is a place for these kinds of mass neutering things to happen if they are part of an ongoing program if they are there to capitalize or upskill an ongoing program i think by the time thinking about the years thinking you got involved in portugal i think at that stage very soon after we were starting to get Portuguese vets coming along and getting involved and then it evolved into the having some visits from people that would later or had just founded Animais Tour as a a Portuguese group but I think we had all been egged into that tradition that you have to fly in and save the world and fly out again I'm more than comfortable to say that probably what we achieved at the beginning was not as great as it could have been if we'd taken a different approach I'm quite proud that we recognised that there was a problem and that we did something about it because there are groups that are still working on that fly in, fly out once a year, don't do anything else. Yeah. And it does smack a lot of white saviour sometimes exactly. if you look at some of these um, programmes. And, and again, it is it can be a fault in the veterinary profession that these things are also tend to be built around providing practice for students that have just graduated in the UK that you go somewhere and practice on street cats that are somehow almost less important because they're foreign cats you know and dogs are just as vulnerable as well but I think what we managed to get to was a fairly harmonious point where we're upskilling we're certainly we're trying to step away from the things that we start once we know that the locals have taken it over and and are comfortable running it and had everything from us that we could offer that's the time to turn around and walk away and let them get on with it here and there particularly in island situations i've done a tnr on a very tiny greek island where there hadn't been a vet for 15 or 16 years and there is population 300 people uh, that would never support a local full-time vet and in those situations bringing that resource in with the greek Animal welfare fund was the absolute right thing to do i've done projects in gibraltar where simply is one vet and he was more than competent at uh, neutering feral cats and he's been doing it for years but he just he'd fallen behind in terms of capacity and he needed a little boost he needed somebody to come in and help move him a hundred cats along the uh, the journey in order to keep pace with the population and those things are extremely valid i think we probably we're blessed with in your and my experience we're also blessed with a much more competent local set of charities and groups in a lot of places where it becomes a lot easier yeah, for sure to train groups that are willing to train you know, locally based groups that comprise people of the nationality of that country because when you and i first started doing this kind of thing we were entirely dealing with expats that live locally yeah. you know, there was no involvement of local people and i think we both agreed that that was nothing to do with the motivations of local people wanting to get involved that was to do with the motivations of expats putting up barriers to local people from being involved yeah, which still exists in so many places yeah, absolutely. yeah but consistently if you look at the projects where there is local involvement and a high degree of local involvement they tend to be the successful ones and mm. 
there are these little clusters of these colonial fly-in, fly-out things. As I say, actually, I was very guilty of, you know, going back 20 years now when I first started doing this sort of thing. But they, they still persist, and it's such a shame because if you can marry up all those incoming resources and those local resources and go out and find all that untapped potential, then you can absolutely produce really winning projects. And it honestly doesn't matter if when you pack up all your stuff and you get on the plane and go home, if the plane crashes, cats are still going to get neutered in the place where you've just been. I think our experience, yours and mine, was that if our plane crashed in the early days on the way back from Portugal, there was no real fallback. The whole yeah. thing would have, yeah. would have been a bit screwed. Absolutely. I mean, you know, it would have been a tragedy for other reasons as well. Uh, possibly, yeah. Not just for the veterinary projects. Well, I, 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 it depends on whether you have, because you're a much better swimmer than I, so obviously the tragedy <laughs> would have been uh, less so. But, yeah, yes, you're absolutely right. I just, I feel like I need to interject here and just... Uh, get in between this sort of who's the best at TNR, masculinity, it's shortening. So I have got no issues in admitting that I am quite possibly one of the worst TNRs that has ever been produced. I remember the first time I went out and saw somebody put cat food in a TNR cage with their own bare hands and like the horror on my face and then watching people do that with sardines. To people that have never done Trap New to Return, if you get sardine juice on your hands, it literally, to me, that was my day ruined. Like, I was just like, this is ridiculous. My hands stink. But I remember that at one point, a resident decided to get involved and started chasing the feral cat with my trap, <laughs> just running at the cat with my trap and like going, oh, come on, come on, sooty, come on, get in, get in. You know, I just like was watching in absolute horror. And just for the people, you know, I was trained by Ian McFarlane at one point in my career. So, um, <laughs> Uh, uh, I'm, I'm a that's why you're no good at TNR. You know, Harry and I worked together a lot, and one of the things that we did notice is one of the tasks that we did was we wrote some guidelines as so an information sheet that you could give to the people that feed the cats and the people that are in the local area <laughs> to help them with things they needed to do in order to make your job as a, a TNR operator a lot easier i'm not ashamed to say we relieved our stress at times by writing an alternative set of guidelines which i won't go into details no probably best not it would be be things like when the cat goes in the trap wait for the door to close before you run around doing a a lap of joy that (laughs) is finally been caught but those interesting that your questions earlier on about sort of the commonalities around the world those sorts of things of people running around after cats with traps and that kind of thing, that happens everywhere. And, and it's always with such good intention, isn't it, Ian? Like they think they're helping because they're yeah. the ones that feed the cats every day. And they do have a relationship with these cats, but there's a difference between having a relationship with a cat that you can put food down for on the floor and after a few weeks, maybe get to touch it without it running away to then picking it up and putting it into a wire carrier and assuming that that cat isn't going to rip your face off. <laughs> Even kittens that are not socialized but to nine weeks, seven to nine weeks, which is the sort of cutoff, even those kittens will, when they grow older, form a very strong bond, many, many feral cats do, with their specific feeder. And one should never discount the fact that sometimes that specific feeder can pretty much do anything with that cat. And I have seen that happen. I famously saw it happen with refuse collectors in Gran Canaria, where I was sat there with my co-trap, and we'd been there for hours trying to get this cat who appeared to have a broken leg. 
and the refuse collectors came along and said, sort of, what, are you, what are you trying to do? I'm trying to get that cat. So I said, you want the cat to go in that cage? Uh, yeah. Oh, that's no problem. I'll do that. And myself and Jeff, who I was working with at the time, were just, oh, my God. We, and the guy just went up to the cat and picked it up and put it in the cage uh, without a problem. <laughs> um, because this cat had become accustomed to this specific caregiver. But what we tend to find is that bond takes a long time. It doesn't necessarily mean that those cats are suitable for rehoming, and that bond doesn't transfer to it's it's not a generalized bond to every human. It's a very specific bond to that human, and if you take that human out of the picture, then that cat has to go right back to being and learn to trust somebody, and that may well take a number of years. And it's one of these reasons why we often hear from feeders that will say, "Oh, my cat would be great to come into your shelter. It would be very easy to adopt. It's so friendly." Mm-hmm. So it doesn't take that validity away, but you know, a lot of the feeders will, will maybe be looking after five or six cats and that's it. And that's their entire experience, but think they're experts. But I point out if you, I have a brain, but I'm not a brain surgeon. You know, It doesn't make you an expert that you have five or six cats yeah. that you feed every day. I mean, safety from a point of view is something that when you're working in these programs is something that has really, really been important to me for a long time. I've seen, I've experienced cat population programs where there isn't the right equipment or the equipment's not in good repair or there isn't enough of the right equipment. I've seen very, very cavalier attitudes towards equipment from quite large sort of veterinary assistance charities and occasions as well, you know, where that's almost like the afterthought. Mm. But the thing is, if you get bitten, you can't help more cats. It's perfectly possible that if you get badly bitten, you're not going to be able to get in the car and drive home with the cats you've already caught. The equipment is out there. We're very lucky as as an industry that we have one of our main suppliers in the UK is MDC. I was going to mention MDC, Ian, because you have the honour of having a cat trap actually named after you, don't you? Yes, the the arsehole trap, I believe it's called. Is that the one? (laughs) Um, but we, we were talking about this here at work yesterday, that as a charity sector and with the industry in the UK, we're all very close. The family, the animal welfare family, extends to a lot of our suppliers and people like Rick Heyman and with the disinfectants and MDC and companies like that, where we have a dialogue where we can go to these manufacturers and say, look, would you be able to produce this or would you be able to tweak this a little bit better to make it a bit safer? Or would you be able to make a slightly bigger version of this or a lighter version of this for us? So I think that's really nice. And I think the ability, the whole, I mean, it's lovely having a cat trap named after you. Personally, I'd rather have an airport named after me, but a cat trap will do <laughs> in the interim. But it's the whole reason that that trap is named after me is there was a very specific product that didn't exist. And that company was open enough for me to be able to go and approach them and say, look, here's this crazy thing, would you mind producing it? And I'm just going to give you an absolute guarantee that you might sell enough to make the whole thing worthwhile for you. How privileged we are in that situation that we can do that and that if I need another one of those, I can call up that company. And there is a company in Bedfordshire that's making cat traps where I can probably go and get one the next day as if I was going to buy a a TV Asda's or something. You know, it's a very privileged situation that we've found ourselves in as a profession as a sector that there is this extended family we all it sounds terribly incestuous but we all seem to know each other whether we're vets whether we're working internationally whether we're working locally whether we're behaviorists 
And that's because we do all work together and we do cooperate. It's one of the nicest things about being in, in this animal side. And we deal, certainly when you're working as in the situations where you're dealing with street animals that have got a lot of health problems or where you're dealing with investigating cruelty, whatever it is. One of the wonderful things is that you, although you deal with a lot of heartache, you do have a lot of moral support. Yeah from across your industry and you have you know most of majority of my friends come from the animal sector are people i've met along that journey yeah, absolutely totally agree i think that something i was really interested in asking you ian was it's kind of a two-pronged question really is looking at your career and you know you've worked for some incredible organizations some of the biggest names out there something that harry and i are really passionate about with this podcast is is not only sharing people's amazing stories but also sharing what they think what skills you need to work in this industry because I think often you know Harry and I spoke about this in our first podcast that we yeah. both fell into the trap of thinking I've just got to know as much about cheaters to work with cheaters when actually other skills like project management are so are just mm. as valuable I was just wondering through your career and working in all these different countries for all these different organizations what advice would you give to people who want to get into the same line of work as you and also just coming on to something you've just mentioned how important is emotional resilience in what you do? We were speaking to Brian Faulkner in a previous episode and you know he was talking about some of the horrific things he's seen. I think with the advice aspect, I think all skills are transferable. So uh, I had a wonderful example yesterday where here at our shelter, we had two rabbits dumped in the car park. There was a number of skills that were needed. Somebody needed to be able to go and catch those rabbits. Somebody else needed to remember where the net was that we needed to catch one of the rabbits that had gone into an awkward spot. But equally, there was some other information that means that not only did we actually have those rabbits in our care, but thanks to a little bit of putting some information together, some earlier emails, which turn out to have been about that particular group of rabbits, and a, a lot of Googling and the ability to use things like LinkedIn and the ability to narrow down searches and things like that, I actually know who the owner is that's dumped these animals through the use of investigative skills, basically. And that may seem, well, that's great because there's some potential cruelty to animals there that's being investigated. But at the same time, those transferable skills have been quite useful for the specific rabbits because we know that one of those rabbits is already neutered. So because we've found out the likely identity of that animal, we know that it's already neutered. It doesn't need to go to the vets and be opened up to see whether it was neutered or not. So a lot of skills go across the set. They're transferable. From the emotional resilience point of view, I think it's one of the areas where we haven't really caught up quite well. And part of that is because within our, our animal sector, a lot of people are very compartmentalised and certainly when you're working in enforcement and investigation, you see some quite horrible things, but your colleagues maybe are not exposed to that. So because the work takes place outside the workplace, sometimes it takes place out of hours and all hell could have broken loose. But sometimes your colleagues within the office or your colleagues within the shelter may not know quite how much has been involved. So, first of all, I'm an absolute advocate of exposing people in animal welfare to lots of different areas of animal welfare. Matt, when you worked at Cats Protection, you will have worked with the neutering support guys, which is the telephone guys. When we first took on that team, they spent a week out in the field with the Cats Protection volunteers in some of the poorest areas of the UK, literally seeing the stuff that they would otherwise only have dealt with over the phone. So the ability for them to empathise with the cats protection volunteers was a lot greater at the end of that process. And that's quite helpful 
to know that you're not alone and to know the other people in your sector that you're dealing with actually understand a lot of the issues. But my sort of mantra, particularly with my trainee inspectors here that I'm teaching at the moment, is there's a couple of things. You can only do your best and you can only try to get it right um, if it doesn't work out how you wanted it to work out. As long as you did your best to get there, then you should never feel guilty. It can become very personal. It can become You can become very obsessed with situations uh, you can sometimes become very obsessed when you're trying to catch cats for neutering with getting that last cat i'm just reminded harry of the particular cat that went into the trap didn't activate the trap but had a poo if you may recall some years yeah. ago <laughs> and you you were quite emotionally damaged by that experience for quite a while after. i've still never gotten over it you've never gotten over it you can't look at a cat trap without expecting the steaming turd to be there where the food should be i still don't know how it managed it still don't i don't don't know either but it's those sorts of things really it's where you you can only do the best and the other thing is you might not get that last cat on that occasion but you'll probably get it in three months time certainly we work on a a sort of a mantra that a lot of RSPCA officers use in the UK. So I'll get I'll get him next time. And I think that's probably something, a little bit of that comes with experience, age, maturity, but where you realise there's only so much you can do, but you don't have to do everything then and there all in one go. It's very much, Harry, you and I have talked about the problems when organisations don't have strategies, but yeah. it's very much this issue of decision control, where when you're making your decisions in the field, either as an organisation or maybe as an individual level, when you're making your decision, you really need to know what you actually want to achieve from that decision, what you're going to expect to happen, and what the benefits are going to be, and are they going to outweigh the risks of what you're doing. And I think if you have that kind of a thought process in place, then you can feel more confident that your decisions were good ones and if something goes wrong you feel less guilty if you like i guess in terms of the not very nice stuff that we see i think it's very easy to forget that we still probably see more nice stuff than not very nice stuff for everybody that abandons rabbits in the car park there'll be somebody else that'll come and walk in with a check for five hundred dollars for you because they've decided not to have any presents for their anniversary or something like lines so i think it's important that you never forget the good stuff that you get from animal welfare in amongst all the bad and i think if you look at individuals that tend to take that approach the first two people come to mind are mark and sam green in sri lanka who deal with some incredible challenges but their whole ethos of if you look at the organization and even their problems they've had recently with lockdown and curfews has all been positive it's not been about you know oh my god this is going to be a disaster it's well look we're feeding some dogs and while we're feeding these dogs we're counting them so when we come out at the end of this we're actually going to know how many dogs we need to vaccinate and neuter and i think that it's a very very useful place to be emotionally if you can get there yeah absolutely there was just one other thing that i wanted to ask you ian something that i've mentioned on a podcast previously For those of us that love animals, and you mentioned something before about respecting the species. Mm -hmm. And one of the joys for me personally about working with feral cats was the opportunity to, it was almost like a mini safari. (laughs) You'd be at a a remote place. The one that always springs to mind to me was an amusement park that was closed. And it was just me with the trap and the colony of cats and being there at like 11 o'clock at night and there were nobody else around and me just obviously having a job to do to trap these cats so they could be sterilized and released. 
but observing their behavior and just kind of watching their interaction and learning about cats and seeing how they behave I always felt was such an enormous privilege and it's one of my favorite memories of working in animal welfare of having that opportunity and I'm just wondering in all your experience and all of the things that you've done are there moments that you go back to and go this was really special this was something that I loved the opportunity the experience a moment or something that meant a lot to you yeah there's there's tons of those sadly with the issues of age you know which is particularly a thing for you and me less so for Matt (laughs) a lot of those early memories probably have gone I think the the one that springs to mind more recently for me was uh, eight, nine years ago, I was wow. working in Tanzania. And we had this young kid who was eight or nine years old, and he brought his kitten to the vaccination. It was actually World Rabies Day. And he brought his kitten. He walked about one and a half miles with his kitten in a box. His parents had sent him along to have a kitten neutered and vaccinated at the charity clinic. And um, we bumped into him in town a few days later. And it was a Sunday and he was all dressed up to go to church. So he had his little his suit and his tie and everything on. He was absolutely immaculate. And he came running down the road and high-fived me hmm. on the basis of the fact that I'd been involved in looking after his kitten a few days earlier. And that's massively, you know, you don't forget shit like that really, do no. you? But there's lots of examples like that, I guess, that I can give. Yeah, that's really nice. And if you had one wish or hope for the future of animal welfare in regards to where you want to see it going or what changes you'd like to see to continue the progress that you've seen and been involved in over the years, what would it be? I think it's still, it's difficult to come out with this without criticising, and it is criticism to a certain degree. The organisations that are involved in animal welfare are much more collaborative than they used to be. We've come a long way from 2001, where everybody was lined up on the border into Afghanistan, ready to outcompete each other as to who could save the most animals. I think we, you know, we have a lot of coalitions, working groups. We have the Cat Population Group. We have the ICAP Group. We have lots of sort of little mini alliances. I'm guessing what really concerns me is the consequences of the COVID pandemic. Everybody's competing for the same dollar, that we don't return to those tribal. um, There are still organisations that are very tribal in the way that they fundraise. Their fundraising is based on the fact that we do this and we don't do what those other guys do. Sometimes those other guys have to do what they do because you choose an organisation not to do the more difficult stuff or the more unpleasant stuff. And that's always existed. But I am concerned that as we come out of COVID, that we don't return to those days because it would do the whole animal welfare movement a lot of harm for those allegiances, if you like, to fall away. They may get stronger. We may be very lucky if they get stronger. But I'm just very much hoping that as we find charities are becoming more desperate for funds to keep going, that everybody still remembers they are part of one team and are working together. It may well be we end up with less animal charities and that may be a good thing because there's a lot of overlap and there's a lot of duplication and maybe that we can streamline. But the sector really needs to look at how it comes out of this with a long-term view to not damage the other complementary parts of the sector that they're in, really. That's an upbeat one, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that was another amazing podcast brought to you by the Animal Chat Podcast, sponsored 
by International Cat Day. <sighs> Not sponsored okay. by International Cat Day or International Cat Care. It was Jesus. They're going to pull well, this. You know what? If there was ever any chance of this being sponsored by International Cat Care, then you have royally screwed that. Also, by the way, can I just say something, Harry? Yeah. If there's one take-home message from International Cat Day today, don't dress up your cat. Oh, that don't do that. Yeah, please don't dress up your cat. If you're on social media and you think it's funny to dress your cat up, don't. Because it makes you look like a dick. I'm and sorry. also, no, I totally agree. And yeah. even more than that, don't put a fucking cucumber behind your cat to scare it. Or don't yeah. throw a piece of ham on its head to see the reaction that yeah. it will make. Don't do things. There's lots of stuff, Instagram and Facebook yeah. and TikTok and YouTube, yeah. all of these videos. Cats are entertaining enough and there's no yeah. shortage of cat videos. Don't do something that's just going to get a reaction out of your cat that will make a fun, shareable video if it's going to stress your cat out. Just don't. Just don't do it. Just say no. Just literally let them be cats. Let cats be cats. If you want a cat as a pet, have a cat as a pet. Yeah. If you want a superhero as a pet, have a kid. <laughs> have a kid. Have a kid. Dress them up as a superhero. And put a cucumber behind them and throw ham at their face. <laughs> separate those bowls as well while you're at it. Yeah, separate the bowls. It's got me angry. International cat has got me angry. It has. We're very passionate about cats on this podcast. We're very passionate about all animals on this podcast. But today in particular, we are passionate about cats. And that was a really great podcast with Ian. Yeah. It was so interesting. Like He's had a career. He has done so much and he's been to so many places. And it was really fascinating talking to him. And it was really nice to catch up with him as well. Haven't spoken to Ian for a little while. So it was really yeah. great to reminisce about the old times. Do you, who do you think's traveled the most, him or Liz Tyson, in our first season? Oh, that's a good question. Or Brian I actually think I think Brian Faulkner. I think Brian yeah. Faulkner nails He's it great. as far as travel. Ian has lived in a lot of places, but I think Brian has travelled more. But from one guest to another, Harry, who have we got next week? When the folks tune back in after this professional slick episode, we have got icon after icon in this season two of the Animal Chat podcast. Next week, we have got none other than Jill Robinson, founder of Animals Asia. And if you don't know who Animals Asia are, you're in for a treat. They are one of the leading, this is just my very humble opinion, compared to like average unprofessional amateurs like Change for Animals Foundation. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> these, guys are, these guys, in all seriousness, like Change for Animals Foundation. These guys are world leaders in what they do and they're just awesome people. And I know it sounds really naff, but I love their logo. Like their branding is so good. It's a very cool logo and it's a yeah. really great podcast. We talked to Jill about her love of bears, yeah. the start of Animals Asia, what it's like to start an organization that is now one of the most respected in the world for what it does and that whole journey. It was a real pleasure speaking to her. Yeah. We should also mention that today, August the 8th, as well as being International Cat Day, is also International Moon Bear Day. Oh, is it? It is. And so 
that's a nice also link yeah. to next week's podcast with Jill Robinson because Animals Asia rescues moon bears and sun bears from the bear bile trade in Southeast Asia. And so as well as today being International Cat Day, also International Moon Bear Day. And to find out more about moon bears, listen to next week's podcast with Jill Robinson. It's going to be something special. Yeah. And as you all know, and you can all say it with me in tandem, review, share, subscribe, please. Tell as many people as you can about the podcast. And see you next week.